This is Salt and Spine. I started to miss our food, which was not something I'd ever experienced. I never needed to miss it. It was always there. Off of that came this realization that food is so inherently tied to our memories and our emotions and our experiences. It's not just sustenance. It's something that keeps you connected to your roots, to your history. It tells a story that other things cannot tell in the same way. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Reem Cassis. Now, Reem left Jerusalem, where she was born, at 17 to attend university in the United States, determined not to end up in the kitchen. Well, she did, and she didn't. Reem spent some time working at the largest corporations in the world, from McKinsey to the World Economic Forum, after earning her MBA from the Wharton Business School and a Master's in Cultural Psychology from the London School of Economics. But when Reem had her first daughter, she took the opportunity to slow down and reflect on the legacy that she would leave her children with, and that's when Reem pivoted. In 2016, Reem published her first incredibly successful cookbook, The Palestinian Table. Despite the first book's success, Reem didn't expect to write a second cookbook, but her passion for sharing the complicated history of Arab cuisine pushed her to begin researching for her latest book, The Arabesque Table. Now, The Arabesque Table is a rich history of Arab cuisines. Reem brings her cultural knowledge and the tireless research she's done to bear on the recipes within the book, bridging the past and the present with classic recipes and contemporary interpretations of favorites. Arabesque, from the title when translated, of course, can also refer to a series of patterns that interweave and can hardly be separated from one another. Reem said she believes this is representative of the cuisine that she writes about. It is both inherently complex and cross-cultural. Stick around for today's show, where we're talking with Reem about how to thoughtfully credit and research a recipe, about the process of building both of her cookbooks, and about what she thinks food media could improve upon. Plus, we're closing today's episode, as always, with a little culinary game and you'll find some excerpted recipes from the arabesque table on our website after the show. So let's head now to our virtual studio where author Reem Cassis joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi Reem, thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you for having me, Brian. Of course, we're thrilled to have you, I guess thrilled to have you back. You were mm-hmm. you talked with us briefly a while back, but we haven't had the chance to sit down together, at least virtually like this, and have <laughs> a, a longer conversation about you and your life and your work and your beautiful new cookbook. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, the arabesque table. So we're going to come back to the new book, your second cookbook, but we always like to start by talking a bit more about you for folks who might not be as familiar with your career and your life's work. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. You were born in Jerusalem, and I know you were around food, right? You've said that you spent time in your grandmother's kitchen, your mother's kitchen, just observing and soaking things up. Can you talk about food memories from that early period of your life and what food meant to you? I mean, most of the meaning that food held for me, I think, developed in hindsight, if you will, because a lot Mm -hmm. of those memories that I now have growing up were experiences that I took for granted. I think, you know, every weekend, every Friday we spent at my grandmother's house and we were always in the kitchen. The women were, it was just chatter and it was lively and they were cooking and the smells, you know, it was garlic splashing into stews and onions being browned to the point you could smell them from across the room and chicken being roasted and bread being baked. And you know, to me as a kid, it was fun. You walked in, you saw someone cooking, you grabbed something to eat. The whole family sat down at some point to eat together. But 
it was only when I left that I saw just how much those experiences were not the norm and that what I had was something to be cherished. And you, like most things, you only notice how precious it is once you've been removed from it. Yeah. And so you left because you were going to the University of Pennsylvania, right? You had been accepted. You decided you were going to do that. And and at that moment, you said you want you wanted to be a career woman, right? Like you did not mm-hmm. want to be in the kitchen. And as you're sort of alluding to, like a lot of that hindsight came later in terms of how important those food memories were to you. But can you talk about that period of your early career and that decision to go? I think you you studied business. Yeah, initially. I did, yes. So I mean, as a kid, I was always shooed out of the kitchen. So there was a lot most of the women in my mother's generation were very educated, but very few of them worked. They all had undergraduate degrees, but most of them ended up staying at home. And I think for them, they looked at their daughters as the generation that would not do that. And so whenever I did go near the kitchen, it was always this leave, don't be here. You know, if you want to do something, go study, go do something else, go play, but don't be in the kitchen. Uh And there is this stereotype, I think it exists in many cultures, where you look at food and cooking in the kitchen with this lowbrow perception, like it's this meaningless or menial place to be in. And I, I absorbed that stereotype and I wanted to break away from it. And I think a tipping point happened for me uh, right after I got accepted into Penn and I was with my father. He was, he'd ran into a client of his at some place and he mentioned proudly that I'd gotten into Penn and I was leaving. And the guy goes very matter of fact, oh, why are you going to bother paying all that money to send her to school in the US? Don't you know she's going to end up in the kitchen anyway? And I always talk about this in interviews, but I don't mention that he in the same breath said, my daughter has a PhD in chemistry and she's in the kitchen. And I thought, this is insane. You know, why are we getting education and experience and then ending up in the kitchen? And I saw it like this life sentence, this horrible place to be. And I think if you end up there out of circumstance, not out of choice, it probably isn't what you want to be doing. But what happened to me was I did leave and I did get a good education. In fact, I went ahead and got my MBA straight out of undergrad, which is very uncommon. I think Uh you know, one or two kids get accepted every year straight out of undergrad. And then I got a job at McKinsey, which again, was one of like the two jobs everybody wanted out of business school. Right. And I did that for a while, but I wasn't happy. And, you know, sometimes I don't like using the expression, I wasn't happy because it sounds frivolous, but it was more, I, it lacked meaning. You know, I would be there at two in the morning working on slides. And in the back of my mind is, well, who am I helping? What am I contributing to society? What am I leaving the world with? And that left me in a place where I wanted to change. And of course, in hindsight, when you see the books I've written, it makes it seem like, oh my God, she left McKinsey and chased her dreams. No, it did not happen like that by any (laughs) stretch of the imagination. It was... I went back to school again because it was what I knew and it ticked another box. And I thought maybe I'll get a PhD after this other master's. And then I worked again. And it wasn't really until my first daughter was born that I took some time off and really had the chance to think and see things in perspective. You know, there was this idea of, well, now I have offspring. These are people that I'm going to leave behind in the world. What kind of a place am I leaving for them? And what am I leaving them with? Sure. And it was then that I thought, well, at least at the very least, I want to preserve my family's stories and our recipes for her because she's probably not going to grow up back home the way I did, connected to her roots and her culture. And yeah. that precipitated the collection of the recipes and stories from my family. 
But I think seeing them come together, I realized, you know, these could be the story of any and every Palestinian family. And that was a narrative that, as you know, is um, not the one that's shared with the world usually. It's a very different yeah. side to Palestine and Palestinians that people see. And I felt a sense of responsibility to share this other narrative with the world and, well, the rest, you know, where it goes from there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep talking about that. But when you moved to the United States, when you go to Penn, like you get, you know, you get your MBA, you get your job at McKinsey. How does your relationship with food change? Does it change mm. as you are on your own as an adult? You're cooking for yourself. Like how does, how does that evolve? It changes, but it changes pretty slowly. So okay. initially the change that happened was I started to miss our food, which was not something I'd ever experienced. I never needed to miss it. It was always there. Sure. And off of that came this realization that food is so inherently tied to our memories and our ex emotions and our experiences. It's not just sustenance. It's something that keeps you connected to your roots, to your history. It tells a story that other things cannot tell in the same way. And so what I started doing was cooking. And it wasn't this conscious decision of, oh, I'm going to cook to be connected to my family. No, it was very subconscious in a way. I would crave my mother's ma'lube, and so I would call her and, uh, you know, probably 10 times in one day to get uh -huh. uh, instructions on how to do the specific dish. And I'm working out of a communal kitchen without the right pots, without the right ingredient. You know, it was, it was challenging at first, but slowly with time, I started cooking more. In part, it was because I initially, it was because I missed it. And then I started realizing I was building a community around this. You know, there were people from the dorm who were coming to eat anytime I cooked. And then once I moved out off campus, all my friends would gather in my apartment. It was a small studio and I would regularly have 10 to 20 people over for dinner. And it okay. just became a way to, you know, build a sense of community wherever I was. And it remains to this day, the way that I make friends, the way that I build community, regardless of where I am. And I move a lot. So it's important to find that network wherever you are. And do you think that that was sort of like a long path then to your first cookbook, The Palestinian Table? Because you had this moment while you're on maternity leave, right, where it sort of solidified, but mm -hmm. talking to your mom, making these recipes, having these dinner parties, like, is that, was that all sort of leading to that, whether you realized it or not? In hindsight, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was that. It was the cooking for other people and the constant feedback of, wow, this is so good. Or, oh my God, I didn't know this was a Palestinian dish. Or I didn't know this was an Arab dish. Or, oh, this is so much better than what I've had somewhere else. And you realize, well, A, this is something I apparently am good at. So I should probably you know, do something with it. And then you start noticing other things in society. You start noticing restaurants that are marketing you know, your dish as something else. I was in London at the time and there were a lot of restaurants marketing a lot of foods as Israeli, which were right. not. I'm not claiming them as Palestinian, but they're at best Middle Eastern. These are Arab dishes that have been part of the repertoire for centuries. And that was a source of frustration that also I felt, you know, it's not just about being able to do these foods really well and wanting people to experience how good it can taste, but also have people understand the history behind it. So I think all those things, it's hard to isolate and say it was talking to my mother or it was seeing the way food was marketed or being told that I was a good cook or, you know, it was the combination of those factors that ended up making me come to that stark realization on maternity leave. Yeah. And your, your first book was very personal. Did you expect that it would be so praised and so well received too? I mean, you have you, numerous accolades nominated for a James Beard Award. Like I could list a bunch of, <laughs> of recognitions that you received for that first book. How did that feel 
putting that out into the world and getting that back. It was very validating because when I set out to write this book, I knew nothing, literally nothing about the industry. I mean, I Googled uh, independent publishers and I called up Fiden by phone. I mean, who did that back in 2014? I called them by phone and said, do you accept unsolicited manuscripts? And they're like, yeah, here's their email, reach out. And it was such a bizarre process. I showed up to the first meeting with a nursing three month old. So I did not know how this world worked, but to me, it was important to get this book out almost just as a way to safeguard these recipes. And then I thought that's it. I would be done. And then I'm going to go back to my quote unquote real life. Uh So when the accolades came in, the recognition, all of that, I was definitely shocked. It wasn't, you know, when people ask what you did, I never said I'm a cookbook author. I said, I used to be a consultant and now I'm taking some time off. Okay. So it was very funny for me to finally, or not funny, but it was validating to finally be able to say, you know, I am a food writer now that I have two books and countless articles under my belt. Sometimes I still, I'm not as comfortable saying it, but now I realize it's actually the reality, whether I want to admit it or not. (laughs) Sure. But it was surprising to answer your question. So is that how you got your first book deal? You you just cold called them and that led to an email and a meeting and like you got a book deal out of that process? Yeah. So I was simultaneously reaching out. So I had Googled, you know, how do you publish a cookbook? And it said, you need a proposal and you need an agent and so on and so forth. Um, And I knew that it would be very difficult to get an agent. I had sent my proposal to something, someone called a literary consultant. And she wrote back and said, you know, this book's a master or this proposal is a masterpiece, but you're not going to find anyone to take you on. You don't have a platform, so on and so forth. And so I thought, okay, whatever, I have nothing to lose. I reached out to agents thinking no one would write back and simultaneously reached out to Fiden. So I ended up getting both an agent and getting the deal with Fiden. But it was, yeah, very much uh, I hustled and got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's great. It Sometimes it doesn't always work that way. So that's, no. that's nice that it worked that way for you. Um, receiving all of that praise and accolades and awards, did that factor into your decision to then write a second book? Because you, you just said, you know, it was kind of going to be a one and done thing. We're here now to talk about your second book. Mm. What did that mean as you then v- embarked on the new second book to have sort of the pressure, I guess, to for lack of a better term of like all of the praise and well mm. receiving that your first book uh, had? So the pressure came on once I actually started working on the second book, because it wasn't the accolades that precipitated this book. If anything, it was, you know, two things. One, it was me digging deeper into the world of food, right? I was asked in interviews, well, what is the difference between Palestinian and Lebanese and Syrian and all these other Arab cuisines? Or what's the whole issue with Israeli culinary appropriation? Can you tell us more about it? And to be able to answer those questions, I started digging deeper and I went down this rabbit hole of like all the way back to the Middle Ages. And you realize how vast and rich the cuisine of our part of the world is. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, there was this frustration I was feeling because all these books were popping up. And they were all purportedly national about different national cuisines in the region, but they were fusion at best, right? You know, it's you're having a Palestinian cookbook with like rose donuts or chocolate coconut cake. These are definitely not Palestinian dishes. These are fusion or inspired. And that's there's nothing wrong with that. But then call it what it is. And I wanted to write a book that would be honest, that would call these dishes by what they are inspired fused etc but at the same time that it would trace back the origin so you understand the journey that we've gone to to this point basically um and that was what precipitated 
um, the decision to write this book. In terms of pressure, yeah, I felt an, a very intense amount of pressure because the first one was A, much easier. I was okay. just collecting my family's recipes. I was testing them to be able to tell the exact ingredients, but I knew the recipes worked. I knew they tasted good. It was just a matter of transcribing them and making them accurate. With this one, it's I'm developing these recipes. I'm testing them for the first time. I'm testing them on people. I'm trying to gauge, you know, what's good, what's not, and also which of these recipes can tell the story that I want to tell. And finally, the story that I want to tell is anyone going to actually get it? And now, you know, a couple of months in, I'm realizing people got the story. They realize what the book is about. They realize it's not just another Middle Eastern cookbook. Yeah, and and this book is so, the Arabesque Table is so heavily researched. You spent so Mm -hmm. much time looking at old cookbooks. I think there's like a 13th century cookbook that was particularly valuable Mm -hmm. for you. Can you talk about what that process was like, since it was so different from your first book of building this book really on the back of some strong research? So I spent a lot of time reading. There was a 10th century cookbook and a 13th century cookbook, which were very important in terms of understanding what it was like back at that time. But then there was a lot of supplementary material that was, you know, academic research into how crops migrated and how spice moved around and the different wars that were waged over these things. And and it's important because it puts everything in context, right? You cannot isolate cuisine itself from the history of the region entirely. It's all intertwined. And you also start to see how cuisine has traveled from one place to another, how, uh, you know, Arab traders by bringing certain ingredients from the Far East to Western Asia and from there to Europe and back. It's just, it's such a fascinating story. And you realize how many misconceptions we have about food, you know, something as basic as tomatoes. You know, you think of Italy and Julius Caesar definitely was not eating spaghetti and meatballs, right? Tomatoes were not in (laughs) Italy until the 18th century. Chilies were not in Thailand or India until after the Colombian exchange. Um, So you start to realize these things and they're so fascinating. And I wanted to incorporate all that into the book. And so the research was the first bit. And then it was the figuring out which part of the research actually should make it into the book and which recipes and so on and so forth. So yeah, it was a long process, but and extremely informative. And you you write about this a little bit, but that desire, I think, for folks to like identify national cuisines and mm. really embrace these like identities of a national cuisine has been sort of challenging in that respect because it neglects that cross cultural right. history of food, right? And that's that's really sort of I think the the theme of the the book, right? For you is those cross cultural. Yeah nature of cuisine. Is that right? It is. So the whole point, I guess, that I wanted to bring across with the book is cuisine is inherently cross-cultural and intertwined. But at the same time, that does not negate from its significance in defining a national identity. So those two things need not be mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. I can be someone who recognizes certain dishes as important to my Palestinian culinary heritage, while realizing that those dishes probably did not exist 200 or 300 years ago when that specific ingredient was not in our area. But today, and given how long they have been used and how how they have formed a part of the collective memory and identity of my people, they can still be relevant to who I am as a nationality. And even just a way to explain that um, succinctly 
was challenging for you, I think, right, too, when we talk about the title, because mm-hmm. I know it took you quite a while to land on the title. I think maybe even like probably one of the last things that you did was, the was choose the thing, title. Yes. The last thing. <laughs> Can you talk about that process? And then you write, too, in the book about some of the meaning behind the mm-hmm. title and the word arabesque. So the word arabesque itself, it means it's a pattern in Islamic art of in- infinitely intertwined uh, patterns. They can be mm-hmm. geometric, they can be floral, and it's almost hard to tell where one starts and one ends, but it's the combination of the patterns together that's beautiful. Um, in terms of naming the book, yes, I submitted both the manuscript and the edited version of the manuscript, and we finished the photo shoot, and we still didn't have a title. And I think eventually this turned out to be a blessing because it meant that we named the book as a result of what it was, as opposed to fitting the book into a title that we had started out with. And we just, you know, discussed about what this book was meant to convey. And it was meant to convey how cuisine is inherently cross-cultural, but that it can still be important to national identities. And the arabesque pattern to me highlighted that, right? So if you look at the individual lines within it, they are each individually beautiful. But when you look at the picture at a whole, you cannot tell where one starts and one ends. But it is that intertwined nature of that picture that really tells a beautiful story. Um, and so I felt that that conveyed the nature of the book. The other reason was, I also always said, this book needs to be honest. If I'm going to put a fusion dish, if I'm going to put a, a specific national dish, I need to tell exactly where it's come from or why it has changed. And so the name the Arab table was thrown out because it's not 100% Arab, right? There are dishes in there like the cardamom coffee and date tiramisu, which yes, it's been altered with Arab flavors, but it is still inherently an Italian dish. Uh So I wanted arabesque to also convey it's Arab, but arabesque, not 100% Arab. And then one other thing, which I didn't write about in the book, but it was in the back of my mind, um, and dancers might appreciate this, arabesque is a move in ballet where Uh you have one foot firmly rooted in the ground, the other behind you and the arm outstretched in front of you. So it harks to the idea that we can move into the future, but in order to remain firmly planted on the ground, we also need to have another part behind us in the past. Like you cannot move into the future without paying tribute to what came before you. Yeah. I mean, so many beautiful interpretations of the word meanings of the word, like did, did you feel like a real sense of accomplishment when you landed on that title Finally. And, and, and joy? Yeah. <laughs> it was a yeah. long process. It was a relief more than anything once. Sure. But it clicked, I, you know, once the title came up, it just made sense. It was like an aha moment. Right. I noted that your your first book is particularly personal, but this book is also really personal too, right? I mean, we you involve your parents, your your calling throughout the process of building the book to to ask questions. You also um, write with with some length about you know your kitchen now and the way that you feed your children and the ingredients that you might find in your fridge as it compares to the fridge of your childhood and your mother or grandmother. Can you talk about how you worked to sort of weave your personal life, your family into this book, since it is sort of a different format than your first mm-hmm. book in terms of how personal it is? I tend to my writing style tends to be personal. So it wasn't a very conscious effort, if you will, where I felt like, oh my God, I need to bring in something personal here. If anything, my biggest concern was telling the story that needed to be told about each dish. And it just so happened that a lot of these dishes were in some way, shape or form tied to an experience that I'd had. 
In some cases, it's my family. In other cases, it was experiences at friends' homes who happened to be from different cultures or, you know, things I learned from people who were living in different locations. So in the end, it was very much just, it felt like a natural process, if you will. You know, the first one, you could look at it more like a memoir than anything else. This one was a research book, but written in the first person. I don't know if that's yeah. a good distinction or not, but yeah. yeah. I think that's uh, that's a great way of explaining the distinction between the two works. I know you were f- building this book and finishing it right as the pandemic hit. Can you talk about any impact that that had? And were you able to, I think there were some challenges with photography maybe, am I getting that right? Mm-hmm. You are, yes. So most of the writing for the book happened before the pandemic hit, but we were mm-hmm. set to do the photo shoot in March because everything needed to be in by May to meet the spring publication date. And two days before, and and the photo shoot was going to happen at my parents' house in Jerusalem, because I wanted to work with the same photographer because he'd done such a good job on the first one. Uh, And two days before I was set to leave, they issued this blanket quarantine, you know, nobody entering the country, you have to quarantine for two weeks in government facilities, and you can't go back. It was just a complicated mess. We had to cancel our flights, which meant for two months, we were in limbo. Because there was, you know, we started doing some things backward, like we would do the copy editing before doing the photography, or, um, you know, we'd start on designing the book before knowing what pictures would be slotted where. And there was this ambiguity until I was able to fly back end of May, which is, will you meet the deadline? And if not, is this book going to have to be pushed out to another season? Which wouldn't have been the end of the world, but you know how publishing works. It's like so so many things it's like a domino effect you move one thing out of that series and you're kind of screwed for the entire thing so that was the most difficult part and then i do get home and we're supposed to do the photo shoot and then you run into all these issues of oh you just arrived well you have to quarantine for two weeks oh your brother is visiting from london okay now we have to quarantine for another two weeks and so the photo shoot was spread out over a much longer period than it needed to be because of covid and it was a very skeleton crew. It was me, my mom, and the photographer. <laughs> but you were, but you were able to do it. Yeah, yeah, we did. But yeah. there's no styling. There's no right. pr- nothing. It was literally just us. Yeah, which was nice. Wow. But yeah. I mean, every picture you see in that book was cooked either by me or by my mom, and styled by me or by the photographer. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. Um, are there recipes that you would suggest would be like a good entry point for someone opening the arabesque table and wanting to get a sense of the book and and what you're accomplishing here? I think the fette recipes, and there are quite a few of them in the book, are a good starting point for someone who is maybe not very familiar with the cuisine, both uh-huh. in terms of the flavors. They are very reminiscent, you know, very good Arab flavors, but also very easy dishes to put together. Yeah. If it's someone who's familiar with the cuisine and is not intimidated by being in the kitchen, maybe things like the stuffed cabbage pie can give you a good sense of, you know, both the flavors, but also the ways that you can simplify this cuisine to make it something that's more manageable on a regular basis. For someone who has a sweet tooth, there's no, (laughs) there's no end to the options I can give, which would be good. But the tahina cheesecake tends to be one of the most popular ones. Yeah, it's just it's hard to go wrong with you know sesame seeds and chocolate and crunchy and creamy and it's like all the right things you want in a dessert sweet and salty it's creamy and crunchy it's all these contrasts that just work very well 
So if it's someone who doesn't really want to mess with the kitchen and the spices and whatnot, but still wants a hint of the flavors and kind of what this book is about, that might be a good place to start. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Reem Cassis. Don't go anywhere. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Salt and Spine. This week, you'll find a chance to win your own copy of The Arabesque Table, and you can also find excerpted recipes from the book. Each week, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostrat and Carla Hall to today's guest, Reem Cassis, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. And we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. Join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. You can find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. And now back to our conversation with Reem Cassis, author of The Arabesque Table. That's also a dish that I know you made at the James Beard house with your friend, Michael Solomonov. And I want, we, we've talked about this before, but I wanted to ask like your friendship, the two of you has been everywhere, you know, there's been profiles written of your friendship and food magazines and all these stories. What do you think that sort of says about the interest in your friendship in particular? Is that surprising to you? Or or what does that indicate to us that there's like this really intense interest in the two of your friendship as a chef and a cookbook author? I mean, honestly, I find it frustrating more than anything. You do. <laughs> yeah, we're friends. We happen to be in the same sphere in the food world, right? right? Um, our friendship tends to be more personal. Granted, we have done a few events together. But For me as a Palestinian, it's sometimes frustrating to see that why is it that anytime Palestinian food is addressed or a Palestinian author is written about, why does it have to be in the context of who the Israeli counterpart is? And we both talk about this all the time. You know, anytime there's an interview with someone Palestinian, Mike gets called up and, hey, can you offer a counterpoint? Or anytime he's interviewed, I get called up and, hey, can you offer a counterpoint? And I don't see a need to always be juxtaposed as this versus that. And I think sometimes the fact that the friendship has gotten so much attention gives this misleading notion that food is going to solve the problems we have. It is absolutely not. And we disagree sometimes on things politically or how you portray certain things. But if anything, you know, what food helps with is having these uncomfortable conversations. You know, because of the friendship we share, I am able to honestly tell him what I think or to call him out on things when I think he's not doing something that he should be doing in terms of recognizing Palestinian cuisine or other political issues. So I think people are always looking for something that gives them hope. And maybe this is what this friendship has done for people. And that's why they latch onto it and talk a lot about it. But I think if anybody wants to see change, people have to start digging into the stories of each individual person and not look just at that combination of the two together. You know, there's a lot of history behind each one. And it's not just the friendship that matters. It's, you know, if the friendship helps shed light on the Palestinian struggle, then that's great. But the friendship in and of itself, I always found it a bit frustrating that it's always a highlight in every single thing that either of us does. Yeah, it is. It is interesting how it's become like a, a marker for each of you. It reminds me too of this failure often of food media to actually interrogate how dishes are presented. So not only the person like you as a cookbook author or someone as a chef like he is, but you know, you look at a dish like hummus that is mm-hmm. often in the United States portrayed as an Israeli dish. 
And I'm curious, sort of hearing your response to that last question, if you could talk a little bit about how food media could be better at interrogating those lenses that are placed on dishes, on culinary personalities that sort of neglect to look at the the complex origins and history mm. of our cuisines and our, our dishes. So I think food media can be lazy sometimes. And really after the clicks or, you know, what's going to generate the most interest and by extension, the most lucrative return. And that's, they'll listen to whoever is loudest. And generally in the US, it has been the Israeli culinary lobby that has been much louder than the Arab one. And there's a whole host of reasons we don't need to get into that now historically about why that's been the case. But I think food media is waking up to this now. And we've seen this in quite a few areas um, where people are getting called out for cooking dishes. And, you know, my view on who's allowed to cook what is very open. You know, I don't think in order to cook a dish from a certain culture, you need to be from that culture. But I think anyone in food media, if you are writing about food, you cannot hide away from the responsibility you have to understand the history and the origins of that dish. If an Israeli chef comes and tells you, here's hummus, you don't go and call it Israeli. You go research what the history of that dish is. You know, there is not a single dish in my book whose origin I did not research. Even ones that might be so important to our national cuisine, I have looked at where it originated from. Was it of Persian origin, of Indian, of, uh, you know, was it a Western European origin that made its way? I mean, I didn't find anything in that sense, but you look, sure. you try to research, you try to understand, you know, that's the least you could do. And the other thing is, and now that there's more awareness is, if there's a dish that you have been told is one certain cuisine or another, but you know that it's also eaten in other cuisines, then go talk to the people from those cuisines. If you're going to talk about hummus, maybe you learned it, yes, from an Israeli chef, but don't you know that it's eaten in Lebanon as well? Why don't you go talk to a Lebanese food writer or a Palestinian one or a Syrian one? And try to understand the history. You know, there are plenty of people who are dedicating their lives to talking and writing about this. So I, it's very easy for media to access this information. And that's why I say to you, it's lazy sometimes. Yeah. When, oh, okay, I need to write this article. Okay, this guy's Israeli. Okay, Hamas is Israeli. Yeah. You need to question more, be more critical. And I think sometimes, Brian, that's why cookbooks and food gets a bad rap because it's not rigorously or intellectually reviewed. You know, cookbooks don't get the same peer reviews that an academic or a nonfiction, you know, they don't get as fact checked as an article would. Right. And I think if we did that a bit more, um, we wouldn't run into these issues as much. That's interesting. I want to ask, um, what role do you think cookbooks play in helping tell the story of global cuisines? And, and what role do they play in preserving recipes? Like, how do you as a now two time cookbook author view the medium in that respect? I think the medium is very valuable, especially having researched medieval cookbooks and seeing even now, look how many 10 centuries on, I'm still referencing things that were written, you know, a thousand years ago. Sure. And so essentially what cookbooks are, they're snapshots of a current point in time. Granted, for example, mine delves more into the past, and but it's presenting what an Arab table looks like today. And so I think what cookbooks do or should do is document what it's like to eat in today's world, what certain uh, nationalities or regions are eating and how it's prepared. And that's why I think cookbooks should be more than just recipes. You can go online and find a recipe. A cookbook should be a story. It should be an image, a snapshot, if you will, of the culinary landscape. 
And so down the line, when someone 500 years from now is looking back, they can tell what Arab food was like in the 21st century, what Palestinian food was like. And you can chart the change because you have left documentation behind about what it was like. Yeah. Are there books or authors who have been particularly influential to you, especially now as you've written books of your own? There's obviously the historic books that, you know, I delve into, which have been very useful. Yeah. Um, in terms, if you're asking about modern books, yeah, either. Uh, so the historic ones have been the most relevant and important because they've put things in perspective. For okay. Me. You know, even as someone who very adamantly in my first book talks about Palestinian cuisine, I also see in context that yes, these are very important dishes to my uh, national culinary repertoire. But I also understand how many of those ingredients might not have been native to my region until several hundred years back, and I see the evolution of cuisine for what it is, and I can appreciate fusion without it being something cheap that's simply like, oh, I'm going to put this with that and ignore the history of those two. Sure. So I know you said after your first book, it was a one and done book. We're, we're now talking about your <laughs> second book. Is there another book on the horizon for, for you? Not right now. Okay. And again, I guess this is a function of the kind of books that I write, which is they're not books that can be churned out in a right. year. You know, so it's books that require thinking and research and you know, my idea for this one didn't come about till about a year after the first one came out okay. when I was dealing with all the, you know, the interviews and the, the aftermath of that and the other books that were coming out that the idea came to me. You know, there are definitely ideas in my head about what if I do write another cookbook, what it might be on, but there's nothing in the words. Right okay. Now. Well, we always end with a little game. So I thought we would use our cards that we we always use for different categories. Yeah. So I know you have lived all all around the world. I think you've lived in five countries. Am I getting that right? Probably. probably. Something like that. I've lost count, but yeah. (laughs) So I thought we'd play a game where I'll let you pick any combination of cards and you tell us where Mm -hmm. that basket of ingredients might land you geographically in your mind and what you might make from that. So it's kind of like a... Oh, God. (laughs) <laughs> like a world traveling time traveling version of the chopped TV show, sort of. I was just thinking <laughs> chopped in my head and I was like, I'm not going to say exactly, that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we have four categories. We have vegetables, self-explanatory proteins, also self-explanatory flavors are herbs, spices, flavoring agents. And then we have a secret ingredient deck, which can be sort of just obscure ingredients or just an everyday ingredient you might not expect <laughs> in the mix. And do I have to pick just one or can I get one you of can, each? Do you want to do one of each and that's our basket? Oh, I don't know. How do you do um, it? You can either do one of each or you can sort of pick your own combination of things. And then you can also assume you have you know a fully stocked pantry to work from as well, wherever you're dropping Let's into. Let's do one of each. Why All no? right. That's, 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 so that's a fun way to do it. So let's start with a vegetable. Okay, we have onion. Interesting. Uh, the protein we have to work with is lamb. Oh, okay. I'm drawing these randomly from the middle of the deck here. The flavor mm-hmm. is lemon. Oh, okay. I like that. Um, okay, and now our secret ingredient. Oh, is peppermint. Like peppermint candy. <laughs> this is like such a British dish. Oh, peppermint candy. Oh, the picture okay. <laughs> is peppermint candy. I mean, maybe we can tweak it to be but it's peppermint, <laughs> peppermint, yeah. peppermint. Yeah. All right, let me hold these up for you. So we have... Onion, lemon, lamb, and peppermint. Where does that place us? I have to cook something. Yeah, what are we going to cook? Honestly, this places me in England England? more than anything. Yeah, because they always do lamb with mint sauce on the side. Uh, And I did live there for five years. So that was the first thing that popped in my mind. Yeah. 
But then again, lamb and lemon is also very Greek with onion minus the mint. Uh-huh. Although the mint could be used in a salad sure. as well. Sure. So do you want me to build a whole dish? For yeah. You? Tell us how you would work work this into a dish for for dinner tonight if you if you could. Oh God. Okay. So I would marinate the lamb. Okay. I would use the lemon, and I would use um, my spice mix, the nine spice mix, with some chilies as well. Uh huh. And then I would roast that low and slow, very low and slow in the oven. Or I would grill it on the barbecue, actually, if I had that. Okay. We do outside. Coal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the peppermint, if we're in England, I would do a peppermint sauce. And then I would use the onion to serve a chopped vegetable salad on the side. Okay. Raw onion. We do need some potatoes, though. We need some kind of carbs. I can't eat without yeah. carbs. Yeah. Let's, let's hope you have some potatoes <laughs> in the pantry you can pull out. Some potatoes, some rice, some <laughs> Some rice. Yes. Yeah. Should we do one more round? Yes, okay. Yes, um, let's see. Vegetable we have is bell peppers. Okay. I like those. The protein we're working with is steak. Mm-hmm. Okay. The flavor we have is thyme. Mm-hmm. And our secret ingredient, oh, is durian. Oh. Have you have you had durian? I've had jackfruit, which is I guess a close cousin minus the stinky uh-huh. smell. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. What do you think we do with this? So here's what I would do. I would take some of the durian and use it to marinate this part of the steak, okay? Because it's a tenderizer, right? The same way papaya or pineapple or whatever okay, it is. Sure. And I would add thyme, olive oil, et cetera, to the mix. And I would then bake it in the oven. Huh. Fine. The other part of the steak, I would grind it. I would mix it with rice and I would use it to stuff the peppers and I would cook those in a tomato sauce. So we'd have two separate dishes. Okay. I love it. That's so smart to use the durian as a, a tenderizer. I mean, I I don't know if I would like the taste or the smell in any other <laughs> yes, but <laughs> application. But yeah. Yes, but smart thinking. All right, one more to close us out. Uh, vegetable. I could do this forever. So <laughs> I know. I'm, gonna have I'm to... <laughs> impressed with how these are just coming so easily. Uh, cauliflower. Our flavor is ginger. Mm, okay. Uh, the protein we're working with is tuna. Mm, I don't like tuna. Um, okay. We got we got a challenging one now. <laughs> um, and the secret ingredient we have is dragon fruit. Oh, God. So dragon fruit, tuna, ginger, and cauliflower. All right. We have our challenging round here to close. Okay. I would probably do some kind of tartare or raw thing with the tuna. Okay. So I would tuna in very small cubes, dragon fruit in very small cubes as well. I would do a marinade that had maybe ginger and lime. Uh-huh. And I can't figure out which kind of oil yet. Um, and then some kind of herb as well. And then the cauliflower, I would mandolin it very, very thin. And that would be on the plate. And then the raw fish would go on top of it. Okay. So then the juices would kind of soak into the cauliflower. It would soften it up slightly, but you'd still get crunch. So it would be a nice contrast with the tuna and the fruit. Sure. I think that sounds delicious. I have no idea if it would taste good. <laughs> yeah, well, and if you don't if you don't love tuna, maybe not. But um, I, I think that <laughs> sounds like a a great a great dish. Well, this was so fun to chat with you, Reem. Thank you so much for joining for us. For me too, Brian. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun for me too. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. There you'll find featured recipes from Reem Cassis's The Arabesque Table. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. 
You can also leave us a rating on iTunes and join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our intern, Clea Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia at Omnivore Books, and to Monique at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.